We have the eclipse coming. We got leap day. We have lightning in February. It's end of days in Northeast Ohio. And it's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Courtney Astolfi. We have some interesting stuff to talk about with regard to Courtney's beat at City Hall coming up in this episode. But first up, a former judge's vicious murder of his ex-wife resulted in much discussion a couple of years ago about a proposed Aisha's law to keep women safe in spouse abuse situations. But the law surprisingly never fully passed, which I thought it had. Courtney, why not? And are parts of it warming their way into the law anyway? Yeah, so this law, it did pass the Ohio House twice, but it got hung up in the Senate and never really cleared the bar in the Senate. And that's why it's not a law today. Prosecutors and defense attorneys had opposed pieces of it, and then the Senate never moved forward with it. And the bill has not been reintroduced in the two-year legislative session that began in 2023. So, you know, we're not seeing movement in on the full thing in the state house, but like you said, pieces of it have wormed their way into state law. And the biggest piece, you know, it has to deal with strangulation. Before, strangulation was not a standalone crime in Ohio. We were the last state to make it its own separate charge. But this was part of Aisha's law, named for Aisha Fraser, who was, of course, killed by being fatally stabbed just dozens of times by her ex-husband in 2018, former state lawmaker and Cuyahoga County Judge Lance Mason. And so the movement on the strangulation piece of this is is a good thing. You know, people who are strangled by partners are, are 10 times more likely to be killed by them. So setting up special protections for them and making strangulation a standalone crime is, is you know, a, a good step forward here. But as far as, you know, other pieces of the law that have moved through, we haven't seen that on the state on the statewide level. I don't understand why this all seemed so smart and reasonable. We we know anybody that has worked in a newsroom knows that that people in spouse abuse situations are vulnerable and it's very hard to stop it. And this law was really aimed at some key mechanisms that might actually stop it. I mean, this was a clear case of it off the off the the rails. The the former judge was going to get to her and he was going to kill her. And I don't understand why the Senate would oppose this. Does Matt Huffman have some reason that he would not want to move this through? Well, in, in this reporting from our colleague Laura Hancock, you know, it appears as if this is tied up in just the broader dysfunction in down in Columbus. You know, the GOP holds super majorities in both chambers, and this is a Democratic-sponsored bill. It would really need GOP support for it to move or go anywhere, but there's a lot of dysfunction and infighting amongst the GOP downstate, and it just it hasn't had any oomph to get off the ground. But, you know, kind of a bright note here, on a much smaller scale, back up here in Northeast Ohio, Cleveland Heights is kind of blazing its own little trail, and it has taken up part of Aisha's law, at least on the local level. And this is thanks to City Councilor Janine Boyd. She sponsored the law back when, when, when she was serving in the Ohio House, and, and she's kind of carried that, that mantle through as she's sitting on the Heights City Council. So over there, they're using $300,000 from their American Rescue Plan Act funds 
on a pilot program that kind of enacts part of Aisha's law. You know, this money is helping to place more victim advocates in municipal court. And the police department is using a lethality assessment questionnaire to determine a victim's likelihood of serious injury or death by their partner. So they're trying to get more eyes on it and and usher it through at the local level. You know what we should do, Laura? We should gather up all of the people who've been harmed since this thing got stuck in the Senate under Matt Huffman. And let's count up the number of women that have been killed or harmed that that would not have been had they passed this law. And sur- get their photos and surround them around Matt Huffman's face on our platforms and on the front page. I get the dysfunction, but we're talking about saving the lives of innocent people. How can you not move on that? If they had some fundamental philosophical problem that they thought that there was, you know, legal machinations that could be used to deprive people of liberty or something and articulated that, then we could debate it. But if we're just not moving on this because they're incompetent and they keep fighting with each other while they get, you know, they're in the pockets of everybody who comes to to get their way, then that should be emphasized. I mean, the Senate stands in the way of protecting women. What, what, how is that not completely wrong? Well, right, because their priorities are, you know, to take away our right to change the Constitution. This is just, they haven't been thinking about people, they've been thinking about politics. And I agree, this is just one more example of a representative government that's not representing us. He wants to be the House Speaker. The House passed it. So mm-hmm. I would think the people in the House would say, you know, Matt Huffman, you want to support what we are? You want to lead us? Carry on something that is important to us. We passed this because we're trying to protect women. Why does he stand in the way? You're listening to Today in Ohio. Surprise, surprise, the biggest crook in the history of Ohio government is not enjoying his life in an orange jumpsuit. Laura, why does Larry Householder say his conviction on racketeering and corruption charges should be thrown out, despite what, let's be honest, was overwhelming evidence of his guilt? Because he says this was just business as usual. This is just how politics works. And a wink and a nod are not confirmed bribes. I read this, and it's not a new argument. This is what he argued at trial, but it is still so galling to the people of Ohio that He argues that accepting millions of dollars and doing favors for First Energy is just how politics works, that that prosecutors had to prove that a bribe is explicit. I don't know how they would do that, like if there was a contract. You know, I provide you $60 million, you get my um, legislation through. But here's the money quote. Ordinary political conduct is not enough to prove public corruption. It is not a crime when elected officials take actions that are supported by or benefit those who have contributed to their campaigns and advocated for those actions. Like, what? <laughs> that is the very definition of bribery. Yeah, I know. But, the, but that's, that's how uh, bold they've gotten down in Columbus. They're not even trying to hide it. I mean, we talked yesterday, Bill Seitz was saying the system works when nobody looking at this system would say it works. It's the people who are in the pockets of all these lobbyists for whom they think it works because they get their campaign funds enriched or in householders case, you know, lots of money to play king with. I, I, it's, it's, I guess 
it's surprising, but not surprising that he would say that. I mean, Jimmy DeMora said the same thing when he was mm-hmm. convicted in Cuyahoga County. It's the way we do business. It's like, no, it's not the way we do business. <laughs> it means you, just because you've been breaking the law for years and years doesn't mean it's okay that you're breaking the law now. And that's what he's saying. It's perfectly okay for lobbyists to come in with buckets of money to give it to us and then for us to do what they're paying us to do. It's, it's just, no. That's not. You're supposed to take care of the people of Ohio. Look, it's why we're about to have drilling in state parks. Mm -hmm. The gas and and oil industry has come down to Columbus and thrown money around and they've all lapped it up and they are going completely against the interests of Ohioans. And here's Larry Householder saying, right, that's the way it's done. So I shouldn't be in prison. I know. It's like they go to some political school where they're brainwashed and the regular ideas of government that you learn in school and being a good citizen just gets completely wiped out by the idea that you have to keep getting reelected. And so you have to come, you know, keep getting campaign cash. But it wasn't just his reelection money. I mean, he was using money to like fix up his house and he had a house in Florida and all of these other things. And the trial actually made a big difference between these two categories of bribes, political gain and personal gain. Now, the appeal from a householder, which was he had to get special permission to go over the limit to about 105 pages, I think. So this is a very long brief. He does not make any mention of the personal payments. He's just sticking to these political payments. But I I just I wish that everybody in Ohio like really understood what he's saying here. And I don't understand how if, if Bill Seitz says this is this is fine and you have so many examples, we talk about them every day of money ruling the Ohio legislature, why we don't just throw all the bums out. I mean, Matt Huffman has to run for reelection this year. We're already talking about him being Speaker of the House. He hasn't even been reelected, but it's just because of this gerrymandered system. It's just a, a cakewalk. Yeah, I, I agree. I wish Ohioans were paying attention. We talked yesterday about the end of a lot of local media. And so there's not anybody telling that story, but it's story after story. It's first energy, it's tobacco, it's the gas and oil industry, it's the nursing homes. And what's lost in this is Aisha's law. The stuff Mm -hmm. that protects ordinary people just sits because they're so busy taking care of the people who bring in the buckets of money. As Householder says, that's the way we do business. And and so many people, you know, they might vote a straight Republican ticket because they want their taxes cut, right? They see this as the the party that's going to cost them less money. But when you are getting paid bribes in millions of dollars from big companies and giving them favor, that is costing all of us, all of us taxpayers, a lot of money. Like if they're just giving your money away, you know, to themselves and the corporations, are you saving anything in your taxes? Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Lisa, it's amazing when people of wealth run to represent the little guy without really representing the little guy. Why are all three Republican candidates for Senate in Ohio opposed to raising the minimum wage, which I believe is at a poverty level right now in Ohio? Yeah, I believe it's $10.47 an hour right now. And there could be a $15 minimum wage constitutional amendment on the November ballot if the petition drive is successful. But in last week's TV debate, Bernie Moreno, Matt Dolan, and Frank LaRose all said that a minimum wage is not meant to be a livable wage. Frank LaRose says it interferes with American prosperity of hardworking people, (laughs) natural resources, and individual freedom. He says it has a distorting effect 
effect on the market and the market should decide wages. Matt Dolan says that he's hired people at minimum wage, but he says that should inspire them to work harder if they want more pay and to make a living. And he said that things get more expensive the more we raise the minimum wage, which there, there is truth in that. Bernie Moreno says markets are the best way to determine wages. He says the government's role is to have the lowest possible regulations that don't impede business growth. And he says, ask Sherrod Brown about increased immigration's effects on depressing wage levels. And he said, you know, uh, the path to raising wages is cutting immigration. They, they want less government regulation, except when it comes to abortion. Then they want a national law that prohibits it. It's funny how they parse when they want regulation and don't want regulation. The, the idea of, of being opposed to raising the minimum wage is basically saying, for people who are in poverty, I want to keep them there because it's better for the economy. It's better for all of us if we keep cheap goods, even if it means these people can barely get by. What kind of country is that? I mean, shouldn't shouldn't the wealth be shared? I mean, two of these guys are are millionaires funding their own campaign. They're rolling in family money or money that they made in business. Frank LaRose says he doesn't have a lot of money, although he has more money than most people in Ohio. And here they are saying, yeah, they, they need to work for that. They can they can pull up their bootstraps and make more by working hard. Well, and that's an idea that had its day back in the 60s. You know, you did. I mean, when I got out of college, I couldn't get a radio job. I had to work as a waitress for $2.31 an hour plus tips, you know, but I, and, you know, I made somewhat of a living wage, but I don't think that's true anymore. No, it's keeping people. We've done so many stories about the cycles of poverty and just having a basic wage, you know, something that you can actually live on. Seems like a fundamental principle of what this country used to be about. And they're just, let the markets decide. The markets would have people work for free if they could pull it off. That's not and what the best path is. If people don't make a livable wage, the government ends up subsidizing those wages with SNAP benefits and all those other things, right? Like, like let's look at the big picture. Yeah, it's uh, it's surprising that all three of them are in lockstep on that. I would have thought maybe one of them would have stood up and said, we ought to take care of the little guy because they keep saying they're there to run against the elite and they are the elite. And yet it works because Republicans win in Ohio while claiming that. But I, I will say this, though, that that paying waitstaff $15 an hour means your meal is going to be a whole lot more expensive because restaurants operate on a razor thin profit margin and having to pay 15 bucks an hour then they would have to. I would have. I would think that they would not have tipping if they right. pay them that. I much. think we we should have a much bigger discussion about tipping and what is expected. <laughs> right. And because there are places that you make fifteen dollars an hour and just working the cashier, and people are still tipping because mm -hmm. they just turn that around at you, and you're like, "Would you like to pay twenty, twenty five, or thirty percent on your tip?" <laughs> mm -hmm. A discussion for another day. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The guy behind the Aflac duck and progressives flow has some big ideas about how artificial intelligence will revolutionize marketing in America. Courtney, what does he envision? Yeah, we spoke to Jeff Charney. He, he was the chief marketing officers at Progressive, QVC, and Affleck in the past. He was behind, along with like the flow ads, he was behind some of the Baker Mayfield progressive ads, the, the famous, you know, Aflac duck ads. And he left that progressive job in 2022 to start up a marketing collective he calls Make History. And when ChatGPT debuted a few months later, 
Charney kind of threw his lot in on the AI train and he's come up with Make History AI. It's an AI tool that Charney says is going to streamline kind of the long process of coming up with marketing ideas and turning them into an effective ad campaign. The This AI tool can scrape websites, do initial research, it can create ideas and, and kind of bounce thoughts off of its user. Charney told us it can workshop concepts and even create a presentation that helps, you know, visualize a marketing campaign. So Charney kind of described how he how he kind of sunk his decades of experience and, and creativity into this AI tool to, to spit out what, what he's calling. I love this quote. He says, the same thing the calculator did for math, this will do for human creativity. So Charney's talking a big game on his AI tool and and he thinks it could condense what's usually like an up to a nine month process into just a couple weeks. Yeah, I wonder though what whether the ease of it, the ease of marketing ends up polluting our lives with way more of it than we already are surrounded by. I mean, one of the, we're all surrounded by it nonstop. It's marketing is always aimed to get your eyeballs, no matter where you are, whether you're watching television, you're on social media, you're watching YouTube, anywhere you go, including our website, people are trying to reach you. If you make it a lot easier for anybody to make those messages, does it just become babble? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point. And that's a broader question, you know, about how insidious the marketing industry is and in all of our, you know, day-to-day lives. But, you know, on Charney's end, this is his profession. This is what he does. He argues that marketing has not kept up with the times and that this is a way to kind of jumpstart that that next generation that that will tap AI and and I, your criticisms are noted. What, what, what I what I find interesting here is how Charney developed this tool. Um, he teamed up with a local guy, Austin Wilson. He's a 23-year-old Case Western Reserve grad who's been coding forever. He's won hackathons locally. He did Cleveland's COVID-19 tracker, apparently. And, and they kind of worked together on the technical end of this. But, you know, Charney kind of emphasizes that what makes his product different from other AI tools and potential marketing AI tools is that he's really kind of hand-fed it, his personal, like, way of going about coming up with creative ideas for marketing campaigns. So it's really a product of of Charney's brain to a large degree. I don't know. Maybe we should use it for to spread the word on our new podcast, podcast, Dine Drink CLE, which is great, and we're trying to find listeners to it. Maybe that would be a way to get it in front of the right people. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Laura Bloomberg was in town Less than two years as head of Cleveland State University before she was seeking another job heading up the University of Minnesota. She didn't make the cut there, though. Is the CSU board worried that their president is not committed to their institution now that she says she is staying? Laura. Well, if they are, they're not saying so publicly because they put out a press release saying, yay, she's staying and she's committed. So Bloomberg, who's from Minnesota and studied there, she was up against two others, Rebecca Cunningham, a vice president for research at the University of Michigan, and James Holloway, executive VP for academic affairs at the University of New Mexico. And outlets are reporting that Cunningham got the job. But in this release from CSU, Bloomberg said she was honored to have been considered, but at the same time is very happy to be here at CSU serving the university's eighth president. Look forward to continuing work with our board and the senior leadership team. So 
the CSU board says they have full support in Bloomberg, and they're looking forward to working with her on a bunch of current initiatives, including the development of a strategic plan for the school. You know how reporters love to talk about planning to plan. (laughs) But yes, she was just appointed at CSU in the spring of 2022. So we're just hitting two years. Yeah, and I get I I get it. The board is saying, "Yay, she's here!" But I cannot believe they're not shaken by this. I, I think it was University of Akron about ten years ago had a president who who suddenly was looking for another job, didn't get it, was staying, and everybody said, "Okay, he's staying." And then he was looking for another job, and I think a third. There, there needs to be some sign, I would think, some real commitment. Okay, okay. That was my dream job. I but my, but I'm here. I'm I'm invested in Cleveland. I'm not going anywhere. I will not put my name in for any other jobs. When I took this, I made a commitment to Cleveland. You can count on me serving a real term. You're not getting that. All you're getting is well, she's staying, and the board is saying, "Yay, she's staying." But there's no way they're not looking at this, going, "Man, we we did that big search two years ago. We got her in here, and already she was looking to go out the door." Following. You know, somebody else that left Harlan Sands after just a few years. It's a distressing time at Cleveland State. Well, I think it's probably a anxiety filled time at a lot of colleges because of the high cost of college tuition. And there's so many schools that are struggling just with budgets. And at some point, you know, that's the number of students is dropping. I just saw my alma mater. Miami is cutting a bunch of of majors and they're going to have to reinvent themselves. They're going to have to work with all the other public institutions in Ohio so that they're not doubling up on things and they can be as effective as possible. So you're right. This is this is not a cakewalk for, for universities right now. And they're going to need someone who's innovative, working with the city and with their higher education colleagues. And to have some stability. I mean, you need to have some stability if you're going to move forward. It needs to be that foundation. And right now it feels like that foundation is shaky. You're listening to Today in Ohio. When people in China send packages to the United States worth less than $800, those packages barely get inspected by the people at Customs. Lisa, why has Sherrod Brown teamed with Republican Rick Scott of Florida to change that? Well, they're saying that's a threat to national security and a threat to American business for a couple of reasons. But they are asking President Biden to invoke the Tariff Act of 1930 to close that loophole on packages that come from foreign countries, especially China. And as you said, packages less than $800 in value are exempt from U.S. taxes, duties, and fees, and they get into the country with minimal inspection. And Chinese companies realizing that are splitting large shipments to avoid duties, especially in the textile industry. Also, fentanyl smugglers and those using forced labor to make counterfeit products are abusing this loophole as well. It's estimated 3 million packages a day arrive in the U.S. in this what they call the de minimis, below the de minimis threshold. Um, This letter, Brown and Scott are saying it's an unfair competitive advantage over American companies. And they said the situation is at a tipping point. A vast section of American Retail and manufacturing is at risk, especially textiles. And they say it's impossible to compete with China flooding the market with slave and forced labor products. And there are also these overseas e-commerce platforms like Timu, Shine, and AliExpress. They're also avoiding tariffs. And I'd like to say that Amazon is flooded with counterfeit products on black market stuff, but people buy it because it's cheap. But the EU closed this loophole. The European Union got rid of their 
de minimis threshold of 150 euro. I, I can't imagine what the cost would be, though, if you had to inspect 3 million more packages a day. You'd have to have an enormous team of people and x-ray machines and all sorts of expense to be able to do that. I wonder how much this would cost taxpayers to step that up. Good question. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Courtney, why does Cleveland City Council President Blaine Griffin say that Mayor Justin Bibb's radical new staffing proposal at City Hall is akin to one of our favorite terms, a slush fund? Yes. So (laughs) this revolves around a new budgeting tool that Bibb was seeking to employ in this year's budget. And, you know, it's kind of wonky, but it's it's pretty interesting, at least in my view. So Bibb wanted to use something called a vacancy pool. And instead of instead of setting aside money for each department to hire the staff that they think they'll need over the coming year, he took some of those vacant positions out of their allocations within each individual department at City Hall, say public health, public works, building and housing. And he put them into this citywide pool. And the idea is that it would let city administrators be a little bit more flexible and nimble throughout the year instead of being locked into certain staffing levels by department and by division. They could kind of pluck positions out of the citywide pool and say, ooh, public health, you filled your other jobs. Do you want a new position? Here you go. Here's one from the pool. And, you know, it it, it does represent a little less rigidity than has been the case uh, in, in, in the way that the city budget does staffing. But, you know, council is apparently not that big of a fan of it. And Monday, Council President Blaine Griffin said he's kind of, you know, he's right now considering two options for what to do with the vacancy pool when council makes its changes to the budget in the next couple days. His, his first idea was just scrap it completely, go back to the old way of doing things, put those positions back within each department that thinks it needs them and, you know, carry on. The other thing Griffin proposed was still allowing for the vacancy pool, but then not letting Bib and his administrators be the one to decide when departments get one of these positions from the pool. He proposed that council would be the one to sign off on those decisions. And I think this kind of strikes at the heart of the matter here. With this pool concept, Bib would have a little bit more freedom than he usually does to move money and bodies around City Hall. And that's a job that council has always had the final say on. So, you know, Bib says this isn't, Bib's team says this isn't, you know, council losing its authority to make some of these nitty gritty detailed decisions from year to year. But, you know, I think that's where Griffin's slush fund comment kind of comes into play here. These would not have the same level of council oversight as council has been used to if this new budgeting procedure moves forward. I've always been a big fan of the way the city government is set up because of the structure where the council sets the policy, sets the budget, and the administration then carries it out with with a good bit of authority to do so. I think Griffin's right here. This would take one of the fundamental roles of council and give it to the mayor. The council is supposed to set this stuff. They're supposed to say, this is how much this department gets, and that money pays for X number of positions, and these are the positions that we think need to be funded. 
giving that up does alter the balance of power in City Hall in a way that I don't even think is contemplated in the charter. I'm not even sure you can do this under the way the charter is set up. So I'm I'm impressed at the way Griffin is approaching this and, and he's been pre- pretty smart about it. Um, I, I can understand why Bibb wanted to do this. He's in a tough spot. He can't fill a lot of positions, but you really shouldn't change the structure in which the policymaking body would lose its authority to set some policy. Yeah, and, and I think that, that explains why council, you know, isn't the biggest fans of this idea. Of course, Bib wants more flexibility to do the job, the bureaucracy and the hoops that you have to jump through to do anything at City Hall are frustrating, right? And and that's years of bureaucracy piled on top of years of bureaucracy. But it does get down to something fundamental here. And like the big debate this year was building and housing. We've got this new residence first code enforcement legislation. Council spent a lot of time getting through that piece of the administration's priorities into law. And everybody wants us to succeed, but like some of those positions were came out and went into the vacancy pool initially. And council's like, whoa, 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 whoa. We need bodies and building and housing to usher this new law through. We're going to put them in there. And so that kind of shows you it. It seems kind of theoretical, but on the ground, it, it does impact the ability of these departments to have like dedicated money set aside for the staffing they think they need to do the job. We should explain that just because the positions are there and the money is budgeted, the mayor doesn't have to spend it. I mean, he's right. authorized to spend up to so much and and fill so many positions in the budget but ultimately, it's up to the mayor as to whether or not to spend it. So he, so the mayor has some ability. What the mayor doesn't have the ability to do is just start moving positions around willy-nilly. That, that was never contemplated in the charter. Again, I, I, the system, when it works, when everybody does their job, it works. If council starts to try to micromanage, it falls apart. When they create their little neighborhood slush funds, it falls apart. Um, and when the mayor tries to take some of the council's authority away, I would argue it falls apart. Interesting story. Check it out. It's Courtney's and it's on cleveland.com. You're listening to 10 a Ohio. We'll have to leave the leaplings for leap day. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Courtney. Thank you for listening. We'll be back Thursday, leap day, the once every four year occurrence to talk about the news. 